we really was an experiment out of desperation and we, of a pivot and then we open source Kong and a lot of other stuff too but Kong was the one that took off and within six months Obamacare Center of Medicare called and said hey we're using this in production and we got the first 180k check the transition to cloud opening up a big shift in the market way more developers than 10 years ago maybe 30 millions 40 millions compared to before so the skills they need the use case every company is getting digital so every company needs software in open source in the sense what you gain in marketing you lose it in sales the question is how we turn our users into a community and it's not just about hiring a director of community and do a bunch of meetups be very careful when the sales machine grows when you hire the first kind of SDR make sure that the rule of engagements are very set and are simple and fast because you can lose months on deals lost in there and they don't go to the rep. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. This episode was recorded live at a recent HeavyBit speaker series event in San Francisco. We love the HeavyBit folks. Any developer and enterprise-focused startup founders should check out their accelerator programs. In this conversation, I had the opportunity to ask the Kong CEO, Agi Marietti about what it's like scaling an open core offering to the enterprise. As the CEO and co-founder of Kong, which is an API company on a mission to intelligently broker information across all services, Agi drives the company's vision, strategy, and long-term growth. At GGV, we're also proud to be an investor in Kong. Agi is also the lead inventor on five US patents, an angel investor in more than 10 startups, and as you'll see from this conversation, a very engaging guy. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here we go. Agi, it'd be great if you could start with a little bit of a brief history on you know, yourself and how Kong came to be, and then we can go from there. Yeah. Hi, everyone. So how many of you have heard of Kong? Wow. See, you need to invest more. Yes. We're, <laughs> we want to put the money in. If it'll only let us. Uh, so a little bit of story. Uh, uh, the company was actually called MassShape, and... Um, that was an API marketplace. So think about GitHub, eBay for cloud services. People publish APIs, people consume APIs. And so by building this SaaS marketplace for developers, uh, we ended up with about 20,000 APIs, long tails APIs, uh, and 300,000 developers. And so we, we were building this internal proxy runtime to manage this complexity. And out there, we couldn't find anything. So we built it for ourselves, and we've been running at scale for, for the 2013, 2015. And there was one big problem, like all the metrics were up in terms of community engagement. There were no business metrics going up that much. And so we, with one of those board meetings where we're kind of looking at the ceiling, we decided to open source, to look at the asset that we built. And one of those assets was, uh, uh, we thought that uh, Kong, which what eventually became Kong, was a very powerful technology that we built for ourselves. And if we would go and open source it, 
that would have become quite of a, we had a good chance to actually become a big business because out there there wasn't an elastic for APIs, easy to use, open source, go and go, you know, start in five minutes. And so we, we really was an experiment out of desperation and we, of a pivot. And then we open source Kong and a lot of other stuff too, but Kong was the one that took off. And within six months, Obamacare, Center of Medicare called and said, hey, we're using this in production. And we got the first 180K check. And from there, okay, we pivoted the whole company, what eventually became Kong Inc. in um, August of 2017. And so I'm the co-founder and CEO of Kong with uh, Marco Paladino, which is my, my co-founder and CTO. And, and we've been sharing this journey together for like almost 10 years now. But, but the first seven of those were, were Meshape API Marketplace and only the last three are really this new software, open core, open source business model. So we really wanted to do this. It didn't necessarily happen. As, like, so we, really, we had hoped that this would happen and it did happen. Uh, yeah, yeah, to get, you know, not even success. I mean, to get to something. <laughs> okay. When you decided to open source Kong, yeah. was it clear to you that there was a commercial strategy behind that? Yeah, well, in the board, we had one of our board members is in the board of Elastic. And so he knew that kind of playbook that could have become a big business. Like in, the, in those days, 2015 and 16, where okay, you have Docker, which become massive utilization, but not a lot of a business there. So we were saying, which kind of business are we? But we were looking at, at what we were going to open source, and, and we were asking the question of, uh, is this a mission-critical software? Yes. Is this in the data path? Yes. Eventually, there will be a buyer for this, or there is already an existing legacy market for this, yes, which was the API management market, which uh, it became a $3 billion market. And so all of those were like, yes, yes, yes. And is this not too lightweight that everybody uses it but nobody pay for it, like JavaScript frameworks, right? Or is this too heavyweight, like Hadoop, where you don't get any open source uh, advantage because the software is so heavy and complex to run that you're still running an, an enterprise classic Salesforce? So it's just right in the middle. And that right in the middle, like Elastic, like Kafka, like, like Ashicorps, is the right spot for open source. So when we open source it, we did something that said, like, this should go. But you never know, right? When the moment that you actually do it, if if what your thesis are correct. But that was the old thesis, and okay. I think there was some experience then from Elastic of, of how they were running the business uh, that we, we thought it would work for us too. So, Agi, like, you know, as you mentioned, uh, like the open core model, obviously at GGV, we were an early investor in HashiCorp, so have seen that model uh, working quite well and have been excited about trying to find other, other projects like Kong, and we've done a number of other ones as well. But this is like this whole open core model is pretty young. It's pretty new. Why do you think it's working now? Like, is there something about the modern environment that is more conducive to commercializing open source? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you look at like 15 years ago, right, there was only, it was Red Hat, which the primary model was support. And obviously there were Linux, so like massive adoption and you monetize this much on support. And a lot of people say, well, there's only space for one Red Hat. And that was been the thesis for a long time. And then has been this other model, which was more like a dual license as well. And MongoDB did that too in the early days, a cloud era, or with product where features that were given for free depending on the license. And then later on, you get to this open core where you're really selling a closed source product on top of an open source flywheel that you use as a free lead gen, like a SaaS free trial, basically. You get way less data than a SaaS business, but you get this Trojan horse going pretty much everywhere, and then you can monetize on top. So, so that open core, I think, well, there's only one company that went public with the open core model, which is Elastic, which is trading very well, but there is a good cohort of new ones that are getting there as well, so we'll see how those goes. But it's definitely an inflection point. I think cloud helps 
mm-hmm. right? The transition to cloud opened up a big shift in the market. Way more developers than 10 years ago, maybe 30 millions, 40 millions compared to before. So the skills, the need, the use case, every company is getting digital. So every company needs software. So all this kind of combined and created a much bigger buffer for the infrastructure. And the way you sell infrastructure today is through either open source or SaaS through APIs, right? AWS. So it's either or. But the closed source box, uh, it's going away as a, as a distribution model, right? That seems to be a big opportunity for companies like you guys then, right? Because incumbents cannot really adapt their model to this new yeah. way of, of operating. So in that world... How do you look at incumbents? Do you feel like you've got an edge? And how do you try to attack them as a result? Yeah, well, if you, when you're going to open source something, you probably have an existing market if you want to do a business. And existing market is usually managed by yeah, legacy players. And they usually tend to sell to uh, a central IT, right? So it's uh, long cycles. While what I find out with at least uh, in our case, or knowing from other board members that are in the board of Elastic and other companies, we sell on use case. So we sell around mm. central IT. So we kind of coexist in a, in a lot of accounts at the same time. And we enter at a much lower price point as on the use case, right? The buyer is the architect. And there's still such central IT. And eventually, I think we can, you know, we go around and we eat from the central IT. Of the role of central IT, I think, I mean, that's a bigger discussion, but I think maybe we'll disappear. The, the whole, you know, maybe the CIO role will not be. Uh, here any longer in, in a decade, right? But but we go on use cases, so it's a different land, land and expand, right? That's the open source model. It's land and expand. If you are in that mid level, if you are a Hadoop or a heavyweight like Cloudera, no, you actually don't get the advantage of an open source. You still sell centrality, which is not it's not a great position to be in. Got it. Let's talk a little bit more about Kong specifically. So you've got the the API gateway. But you've got much more than that as well. Yep. Talk a little bit about the product line and what comes in open source, and then what you've rolled into commercial. Yeah, we, I remember this discussion with my co-founder, and is we're looking at Acker News, and we were looking at Acker News when I don't know if you know in FlaxDB and Flax Data, where they were removing clustering out of open source and putting enterprise because they weren't making any money, and so they did like the desperate move and taking clustering out. That was like three years ago, probably. But I remember seeing all the comments. And they were all negative, blah, 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 blah. And so we look at each other and say, we can't do this to, to, to our community. And no matter what's the business, but you, you, we can't. So at that day, we decided to have kind of a tau or like what it goes enterprise versus what goes open source. And we, we got aligned on a simple definition where if it's governed, three things basically. If it's governance and security, goes enterprise. Because the, the startups or the long tail don't care about governance much, not yet. I mean, we're a startup, we don't care about governance yet. So, so say, it, it, this is a feature that only matters to the big one, the open source or the long tail won't care much. And if they need it, then okay, then, then they're suited to be a customer. The second thing is teams, like teams management, like you have a lot of teams, it's not just one or two developers using it, but all of a sudden you have maybe 20, 30, 40, 50. So the teams aspect is also a feature that we put into enterprise. And then the third thing is, is like, like if you have different data centers on different multi-clouds, those are like complex architecture that startups don't have. Uh, so also those goes enterprise. And obviously it's all run by support. So we have kind of these three things. And since then, it's been pretty nice because everything that is in those three buckets, we put enterprise, everything else we put at open source. And it's been going smoothly as of today. When we're on the side, there is maybe a 10% every year of things that we are on the side where to put it. Then in that case, the CTO can make the call. But 
on default, we go enterprise first because then it's easier from there to always open source something. We say, okay, we give you something more, and we've already done it this year two or three times. Like caching was an enterprise only, but we, we release it open source. It's much harder to go, we don't know where to put it, let's put it open source, and then you need to take it out and put enterprise. That's something we, we decided to never do. And so now when we're undecided, we put it in enterprise, and then after six, nine months, if the enterprise care or doesn't care, or the community wants it to, then we can always open source it, right? But we can, it's easier to do it that way rather than go from open to enterprise. So that's where we, we do it usually. Okay, so the open source community is very important to Kong. It's big, it's thriving. As you talked about, you have kind of a, a tau as to what you'll put in enterprise and what you'll keep in open source. Are you explicit with your community about that? Does your community know kind of your rules of the road yeah. and what you split? Yeah, so that's just been an de- internal debate for a year. If we're going to go uh, public about it or we use like internal strategy as a competitive. Um, I think uh, we haven't done yet just because it wasn't a prioritization, but eventually we, we will probably publish a page where say, what is our philosophy of what goes enterprise and what goes uh, open source? We've never done it yet, but we don't have much problem eventually telling the world that this is how we think about where things goes. So you know, maybe you could spend a minute, though, on what it's like to have an open source community. How much time do you and your co-founder, Marco, end up spending on that element of your business? The resources behind building and managing that ecosystem, that open source ecosystem. Tell us what that's like, because it's a it's a totally different part of a business than mm-hmm. you know if you're all commercial. Yeah. Well, in open source, in the sense, what you gain in marketing, you lose it in sales, right? Mm. And in the marketing umbrella, you can put also the community flywheel in that big thing, right? So if you think it in this optics, then you can think as a okay, how we can treat it real, because otherwise it doesn't become a community. It has to be real, but also. Kong users doesn't mean community. I think one of the misconceptions in open source is that, oh, that company has a million users on that technology, but it doesn't mean that they have a million people as a community. A good example of that can be Nginx, right? A billion people use Nginx, but has no community. This is, I think, what we realize is users doesn't mean community. Mm. So that was the first thing. And so the question then after that is how you can take all these users and turn into fanatics, because that's what it is, right? That they work for you on, on helping with the roadmap, they do pull requests, so your R&D cost goes down, they helps you on support on forum, uh, answer for you, so the community support goes down, they do word of mouth, so you need to spend less marketing dollars because they talk for you at place, they do meetups on their own. And so we were learning probably last year all of this and then how we can put into an operational machine where we empower, we call it evangelists, like the fanatic, and then we turn them from 10 to 100. You really don't need many. Like if, if you have 1,000, your company, it's, you can, nobody can destroy you, right? So I think we have, we have about 17,000 companies running Kong and that usage is massive, right? Well, we don't have 17,000 ambassadors in a way, right? We have about 10 or 20 that are really vocal. But there is much more. So the question is how we can turn those into communities and how we can empower them to be really ambassador. Because if, if you can turn even you know, a thousand people into ambassador, you basically have a thousand people screaming the war that that's the technology and they need to follow you. So you, you, the business will be. But to do that, you need to be authentic. You need to be real. There can be no gimmicks. You know, it has to be. So it's a very delicate balance. Yeah. And the question is how, how we turn our users into a community. It's not just about hiring a director of community and do a bunch of meetups. <laughs> right, it, it's it's more sophisticated, and actually, we don't have an answer yet on how we can turn this at scale. Uh, we do like one by one. Somebody show up, somebody raise the hand. We put you in the in the community ambassador program, which we give you some stuff. But 
we don't know how to turn on a more scalable way all these thousands of users into ambassador. And what is also the definition of ambassador? What, what criteria? Because every time somebody, hey, I'm going to join the community program, but if you give them accountability of, oh, okay, then you need to do, I don't know, three meetup a year, you need to talk about Kong 10 times, you need to tweet five times, otherwise you get pushed out. Say, no, 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 I don't want to do it, right? right. So they don't want to get accountability on what to do. And if you don't tell nothing, funny enough, they do it anyhow. But <laughs> you can do it. So, so it, it's, it's a very tricky question. I, I think we are, every other quarter, we think about how we're going to accelerate this. Now we just go by raise Somebody want to join the community program, we put in the system, and we make you successful. But we haven't figured out how we can accelerate that, that massive usage into, into ambassador of the company. Are most of the ambassadors using as their megaphone social media? Or are they more in-person type people? Uh, they are a lot online. A lot of online. And then there's also different ambassadors. There's like the introvert ambassador where doesn't talk to anybody. It pushed five poor requests per month and he fixed five biggest bugs. Yep. And then there's the other one that is always chatting on, on the forum or on the chat and doesn't give any R&D value. But it's just taking all this, you know, it's going around all these people like, oh, this, this, and it's, just, it's your support person that is just in love with answering the community. He feels part of a movement, I think. And so there's also different kind of, and I think we haven't categorized also who is who. We haven't built that. I think whoever was going to figure it out, that this thing, it's, uh, you, build a, you build a massive company. Sounds like there's a new product opportunity there to like, yeah. turn users into community yeah. for I open source Ashikov companies. Does a great, I think Ashikov does a great job at that. I mean, just, just the founders are you know, mega ambassadors on their own, right? So they have a followers. Yes, they spend a lot of time and they care a lot about the community. And they've done it before it even became a business. So it's really, it's really authentic. It's very authentic. And so, so I think Ashiko, probably in terms of that, it's, uh, it's massive. I think they nail it that points, right? That, like, if I tweet something, nobody cares. If Mitchell tweets something, boom, 50,000 retweet and 40,000 likes. Yeah. And, and we can tweet the same thing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you need to figure out how you do that. Right? Yeah. And, uh, so a, there, there is that. It's I think point. it's very powerful. Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about running your business with an open source component and a commercial component. Yep. Does your product team own both? Do you have separate teams? On the product side and on the engineering side, or, or do you try to consolidate yeah. those things together? How, how do you how do you allocate resources among? Yeah, the, so the, two the company is about 160 people, but we only have four VPs. So the, the finally we found a VP product which is going to join in in September, which is going to help a lot. On the product side, there is the, we call it Team Core, which is really the API gateway runtime, and that's a, a pizza team of uh, seven eight engineers with a tech lead. There is also engineer manager, and then there is um, the tech lead also actually has a PM. Eventually, someone from there will turn into a PM role. And now, my co-founder and CTO, it's an interim, the PM of the core open source. And that's very ro- hard role to fill because taking a PM from outside and put it into there, like you need, nobody kind of trusts it or, or qualifies. So he has to be promoted from within. But if you have eight top engineers working on the core, on the internal, and nobody of them has interest in being product managers, then you're stuck in this, okay, our co-founder CTO can do it at interim on the side, but it won't scale forever. But that's what we have. And then we have all the enterprise components, which are six, seven teams, all pizza teams, with tech leads and, and engineer managers, uh, and they're built on top of the core. Now we're launching a lot of new products, so the company is becoming multi-product before the end of the year, but, but historically that's how, how we've done it, right? So we have like seven teams building different component enterprise, and then we have the core team, which is, which is seven, eight engineers with a tech leads. And then we have two PMs, on the enterprise, one does more the interface, so everything that is a GUI, 
and another one manage the cloud, which is our new delivery model for enterprise on mm. top of enterprise on-prem. But we are, we're way behind on PM. We should already have probably 5 PM, not 2. Right. So that, that's on our fault because we are behind plan. Okay. But as it relates to the open source versus the commercial, it sounds like you have commercial PMs, but other than that, you have product teams. Yep. Got it. But I don't know the VP product might join and shuffle all this. And, and, well, what and do you think? What do you like? What do you think works best as you scale? Now that you've been running this model for a while, do you think you've got it right, or do you see it evolving over time? Mm, well, the question is how you go from one product company to two. That's I think is the hardest things to do as an organization perspective. Like from two to three, then you know the model. Mm-hmm. But we're in this phase where we're going from one product to two, and that's the hardest jump in every company. And I think that will change a lot how we think. And those. Products are not released yet to the public. There will be uh, at the Kong Summit, but we're already internally, okay, how this will look like after we have different product, because then you might have different buyers, different economic models. So it might change. I mean, complexity goes you know, to a different level. So you, you touched on this earlier, but and you talked about, okay, you have sort of this Tau, which helps guide decision-making about what's going to stay in open yeah. source, but what's going to go commercial. But it sounds like you will deprecate features over time. At least you've done that in the past from commercial into open source. Have you ever had a situation where you put something in open source that you wish you had kept for commercial? Mm, No. Okay. So you've been perfect. Not not yet. Not yet. (laughs) I could. Um, I can tell you that's that's not the case at some of the other commercial open source companies we've invested in. Because by Um, default we go enterprise. And then we we did a lot. We like six, seven times in the last year that we took uh, enterprise features. They get kind of commoditized in the world of proxy and gateways, and so we push it back to the upstream. Okay, and so is there like a committee, or do you listen to the community when you're trying to think about what's gonna, you know, what starts in enterprise and now it's time to move to open source, or is it just a decision that you and Marco make? Uh, uh, we look at the markets, right? So the market of data planes. There is a lot of data planes technologies, and say, for example, Canary release, right? Can it release its? Uh, we had enterprise originally, but then we look at like, well, can it release is kind of a take it for granted in a gateway, which also does load balancing by default, which also eats into market like F5 delivery mm-hmm. controllers. Mm-hmm. So, how we can get more of that market? And can it release is not an enterprise feature. I mean, it's not part of our tower. So, everybody kind of already has it in the data plane of open source. So, we're going to open source it. But to your point, yes, it's me and Mark over coffee. And then somebody else and say, okay, let, let's what, what, you know, what the market looks like. And, and I think every, every quarter we meet to think about what is the state of the art and, and if we have to take something enterprise and put it, and put it open source. And, and sales team screams. Like it, the problem is like something, there is, you know, we have this idea of taking these features and turning open source and then boom, the slack goes on till 3 a.m. <laughs> it's always a balance because if you lose the upstream, then you don't have pipeline, you don't have inbound, you lose your magic. Your mojo, so and you don't feel it. You feel it like three quarters down. Right. So you always have to look at ahead, and you have to balance, uh, of course. And then, okay, let's go back to okay, governance teams. You know, super duper high ability features, and and those are still strong to pay uh, and everything else. Yeah, just echoing what you said before, which I really love is like which in, 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 this kind of, in this kind of model. No, <laughs> that sounds horrible. But in this kind of model. What you gain in marketing, you can lose in, you sales. Lose in sales. So, so it's, it's, that, it's that balance and it's that, that trade-off. Balance. But technically, you should gain so much in marketing that covers the misses in sales. Absolutely. Right? And I think if you look at the last thing, when they went public, there is, a, who was JP Morgan? 
it was Morgan Stanley that gives like a you know one pager opinion, and I found fascinating it between the the advantage, okay, it was a SaaS subscription business, you know, blah blah blah. But between the advantage, they say open source moat. And okay, so the way they interpret that is okay. This is a subscription business with an open source moat around, which is more powerful than a subscription only business like uh, you know Zendesk, because you also get this open source thing, and that's functional as a moat. So we're gonna value this company more on multiples. Yep. And I found that fascinating coming from Wall Street. Yeah. But you gotta have that moat. So speaking of sales and how sales is gonna react. Um, yeah. In this world, I want we, have, we have also the regional VP of the West. Yes, uh, right there. Matt, so Matt is here to hold, hold you yeah. honest. So let's just talk about this go-to-market function. I'm assuming you're getting a lot of inbound leads from open source users. I'm curious, like, what do you do with these leads when they come in? Um, first of all, how do you collect them? Like, is your website built to try to gather those yeah. leads, and then are you sending them all to AEs? Do you send them all to like an SDR team, or do you somehow try to filter? What's yeah. state of the art here? So that's a funny story because historically, when we open source Kong, we put a landing page called getkong.org, and we put a big button say request demo. Demo what? Like there was no nothing behind the thing. <laughs> so people could request demo, fill up the form, and then Michael Fon and CTO pick up the phone, <laughs> like a sales engineering. And then sometimes when they if they ask about pricing, I would join in the call and we'd we'll talk about some crazy price. And within six months, we get that Obamacare, and we really should price on the phone. Uh, and that was an inbound lead, right? They really say, hey, we're going production with this in April because TurboTax, uh, there is the tax uh, season and we need to have uh, support because back then we were only selling support. So at the beginning, it's very simple. You have a request demo button and you have the founders on the other line. <laughs> so instead of request demo, it should have been request Marco. <laughs> we had no clue what they're doing. Like Marco was functioning as a sales engineering as I was functioning as a sales rep. And those conversations were very funny. They were going all over the places, right? So we have no idea about sales. But we closed like 10 logos like this. In fact, the board say, look at these two guys. So if you put a real sales motion, that can take off. So then we started to have a sales team, and we had the first three or four reps, and it was the same, request demo. We find out request demo is the best. If you put contact sales, it's too aggressive. Uh, and in other words, so it was request demo, works even better than get a demo. I mean, we do a lot of A-B testing. But so. so then we put this, and instead of going to the funders, now we go to the reps, to all of them, and then we will start to slice regionally. You are in Europe, you take Europe. You are in US, you take US. And then we start to have an SE, so Marco stopped being a sales engineer, Michael Fonda CTO, and he was working well. And we scaled the business like the, up to 10 million in revenue a year. Like request demo, account reps on the other side, and within three, five months, they close. Then the business gets more complicated. We are way more reps, so we start to put an SDR team in the middle. And when we put an SDR team in the middle, you know, we things actually slow it down. Mm-hmm. And I think we weren't prep on on okay, like there's this filter in the middle. And so the SDR, we're not just doing qualifying and turning those MQL into sell, but they were doing even even things they should have done as senior reps. So things kind of drop it. So lately, we say, no, you take the thing, you kind of qualify based on criteria, like do you have budget, do you have needs, do you have timing, whatever it is, and then we pass it as soon as we can to an account executive. And what happened there is that, okay, we start to gain back speed, but this is for the request demo, which is our lifeblood. We get about 900 request demo per month, and this is like most of the business get closed. Then we have free trials, it's a new thing, which is small, and those are like cloud, people can try, but they convert less. And then we have like ebooks, uh, white paper, download this, download that. 
that. And that's where the SDR has to do a little bit of, of real work to figure it out. But the request demo, they don't need to really be in this pool of SDR. They can go straight to the E because this is somebody sh at the showroom, they want to buy a car, and you're pushing back to somewhere else. So we screwed up, I think, two, three months there when we put this SDR function. So re bottom line, be very careful when, when the sales machine grows, when you hire the first kind of SDR, make sure that the rule of engagements are very set yep. and they're simple and fast because you can lose like months on deals lost in there and they don't go to the rep. In fact, the reps start to raise in and say, hey, we don't get any more inbound. Now, that's another problem because our reps have been drunk of inbound for, for a lot of time and they say, no, actually, you need to do sales for real and then you need to, this is your list of accounts and go and sell. And then they weren't used to do that. They, most of our first generation of our sales team was pretty much taking inbounds and converting, which is a dream. But you can't scale to 100 million but just uh, getting the apples falling off the trees. Is, is, you have to do pipeline generation, all of that. So we're, we're having a culture change shift in sales to build on top of, as an overlay on top of the, of the inside sales. But it's tough because those, most of these people have been just waiting on the chairs, taking the inbound and close a, a 180K deal five, four months later. Not much work. Yeah, so you're, you're verging on another question I wanted to ask, which is how do you layer in outbound in a model where inbound has been kind of the, the lifeblood so far? Do you go marketing on generating um, leads that sales will accept, or do you rely on your AEs to go build their own pipe? What have you seen work on the outbound front to complement your, your yeah. very so fast you mass, inbound? You must have an outbound motion on top of inbound to scale the company to a different dimension. And the question is how. Historically, what we decided to do was, okay, 50% comes inbound, and the other 50% we're going to figure it out outbound from the SDR team. And that changed in the last six months where we still get the inbound, but the account executive reps is the one that does the outbound. So you have to do outbound. The SDR can help, but you have to do it. And marketing, marketing needs to grow that marketing qualified leads as fast as it can, like get, just grow the MQL. That's where it goes in MQL. And then the SDR care, you know, discover and turn those MQL into, into a good SQL or a good, a good sale as a sale. But really, the shift is the rep is the one that needs to do pipeline generations. And if you get an inbound, we counted plus one. Oh, good, lucky day for you. But historically, they were running only on plus one. And we found out that, oh, well, that's kind of dry now that we have you know, 20 plus quota carry people. Before you, you had three people carrying the war. Now you're slicing and dicing and more people are joining. We're going to be 25 before the end of the month. And like the, the inbound is, is not helping to feed everybody. And so you have to do from day one, uh, PG Monday, we, sometimes it's called a pipeline journey every Monday, right? And it's, it's a change that we're doing in the organization as we speak. Mm. Bottom okay. line, you can't, unless you are like maybe a data dog model where you have credit cards, Unlimited. I think you can probably scale it longer like that, or you know, Slack. You know, right? You can scale much longer. Dropbox. But if you had an open source infrastructure company, you don't scale that level. Certainly, you if you're selling up market, there aren't just the, there are less logos, right? There are less logos. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of like pre-sales and work to be done, do you guys utilize SEs in the sales process? If yeah. so, like. What have you found is sort of like the perfect way to use an SE? Like the ratio of of salespeople to SEs, the, to how do you compensate SEs? Do you, do you put them on commission plans or how do you goal them and get the most out of that resource? Well, one, I think if you're, if you're planning to open core or do an enterprise infrastructure, don't undervalue the SE because actually it's an SE-driven sales. Because when you do the first meeting with face-to-face -face with the prospect, 
the sales engineer is the one that gets the trust with the architect because it's a technical buyer conversation and it's like, okay, I'm an engineer talking with another engineer. So that's how their relationship is built. And then you do your proof of concept or proof of value for two, three months. And that's really managed with the SE relation. And then the account executive come over and like close it and do that and build, and build the champions. But th there is that SE magic because you're selling to a technical buyer. If you're like probably another company, a SaaS company, I don't know, if you're like Anaplan, it doesn't matter much. But if you are infrastructure open source, the SE is really the, the center of sales. And people start to thinking it's just a sidecar to the sales rep. In our case, I think the sales rep is a sidecar to the SE. In fact, our best teams performs the best, the ones that have the best SE on their team. So you can see right away so if you're it, good at it. So is it typically a one-to-one -one ratio? Uh, no, because we're not a heavyweight like Hadoop. It's still a lightweight technology in some shape or form. So we model a 2.5. Okay, so one SC support 2.5 reps. Reality, we're more one to two now, and I think that's a good efficiency. If you are one to one, I think you're very heavyweight. And eventually, when you build a 500 sales organization, you have 500 SC, right? So it's very heavyweight. Yep. So we're modeling one to two. And how do you pay them? And how you comp. So historically, they were attached at 70, 30%, 70 base, 30% and variable. And that 30% was attached to the global number as a worldwide sales leader, which now I'm running at interim. It's a fun times. <laughs> and, then, and then that was okay in the beginning because we didn't have this territory. Uh, SE were playing and helping really everybody in the early days. But once you start to have 10 reps and you start to slice and dice, that model is not fair any longer. So actually, in this second half, we change it to a regional, that 30% depends on your regional numbers, not on the worldwide numbers any longer. Um, but they're happy with 70, 30, and they ask for regional number at this point, not to be accountable for a global number that they really don't control anymore. But in the early days, it's good that you do global numbers because an SC is gonna probably support a bunch of other people and it's not really, the territories are not defined yet. Yep. But don't, don't undervalue SC. I think, I think is, uh, for this kind of sales is the most important things, uh, is one of the most important things. Okay, that's great feedback. So I'm curious, you know, on post sales, how you guys handle renewals. You know, how how you oh, try to manage the customer and ha handle renewals. So we, actually, we don't have churn per se. It's very sticky product, but we just because the way the infrastructure works, you put this in place with the 500 APIs, and you you can't take it out, right? Uh, but in terms of what we built on top post sales, is very lightweight. So there is not a model yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, we haven't built a model for post sales. Uh, we are doing now the account. So the AEs on the renewal. No, or? now the AE are on the renewal. They weren't. Now on the renewal. But the problem is the majority of our reps are hunters. So they take new logo, open the drawer, put it in, close the drawer, and go somewhere else. And they do this every quarter. And then you go and open that drawer of that rep in the last year and say, wait, you have this logo, <laughs> this logo. And this one, which are, I don't know, Fortune 50, and they're only paying 100K for three years in a row? What have you done? Like you could have built your quota for the next five years by just juicing this chew. But it's not their mentality, because you have either or. So we're in this moment where, okay, we're giving back logos to those account reps, but then every week pass by, and it's very frustrating, because they're not working on them. So we have an account manager, which is too junior to you know, get the fortune, uh, the, the big companies. So we're in this limbo, okay, okay, let's set up on a customer success team. That's what everybody does. So we put a customer success teams and we hire a bunch of TAMs, technical account managers, which actually are some, in some cases customer success managers. So you're confused, what is CSM and what is TAM? And they get paid, but even if we don't renew, even if we don't expand, so we're now figured out how we comp technical account managers. Do we give them a quota? 
uh, or a product usage metrics, we put them 70, 30, like an SE in some form of uh, attainable, maybe you need to produce some customer success qualified leads every quarter to pass back to the, to the reps. So we're in this limbo where, what, what are we going to do? Because the model is not, it's not working how it should be. Yep. Is okay. need, how how, how Corp does? So today, because their deals are large and they're a multi-product company, AEs are heavily involved in renewals because, again, like accounts are being upsold as well. So renewal is really part of an upsell, cross-sell conversation a lot of the time. And when you have really large deals, I think just abstracting away from just HashiCorp, what I've seen across companies is the larger the deal, the harder it is to somehow have sales outside the loop of that renewal conversation. Sales needs to be involved typically. Uh, then the question becomes, okay, how do you comp sales for those renewals and keep them very motivated on landing new deals and growing the accounts rather than just getting paid and being happy on just renewal business, which obviously doesn't grow value in the company. But how you do it, if you build a sales force that is new logo, new logo, new logo, and then you tell them go and farm, like either hunter or farmer, right? And if you build 100 quota carry people that are all hunting, how you turn them into be farmers? Well, I find that sales management is all about constraints. Like you got to place constraints on good salespeople and manage them to success within those boundaries. You know, if you leave the boundaries really wide, then you're kind of making life easy. The tighter you draw the boundaries, the better someone has to be to achieve success. But that's actually, you know, that's actually a good thing. And so, you know, what I've seen with a lot of very high-performing sales teams is you've got those constraints get tighter every year. So maybe the list, uh, your territory gets smaller or the number of accounts that you're managing, your named accounts gets mm-hmm. tighter and you just have to drive more value out of each of the ones you, you get. So Did you put in the comp new SCV coming from new logo and some new SCV coming from existing? I'm also a fan of keeping things simple. You have to compensate on new ACV in models where the, the deal size are large, you, you also need to comp salespeople on renewals, but that number needs to be pretty low and sh- should be tied to some milestone. Like if you don't get 85% or 90% renewals, you don't get the 2% that you were going to get. But you know, most of your number is going to be made on new business. But I don't think getting too complex around whether it's the new business is coming from new, uh, new logos or existing logos is, is sometimes that can get too complicated. I've seen companies spiff on new logos if they really want to get more, you know, more growth out of new logos, and that, that can work. Yeah. But it's, it's a balance, and, and I don't think there's a right answer. I just think that, that it's, a, it's an art, and each quarter or year that goes by, you have to, you have to kind of adjust to where you are. Yeah. Last question I, I had for you before we go to the hot seat is, um, tell us about the Kong Summit. You mentioned it before. Mm. What do you try to get out of a summit? You, know, you got one coming up. How do you build the org around that and how do you goal people around the summit? How do you know it's successful? Yeah, definitely lower the budget would be. Yeah. Uh, so we did it uh, last year for the first time. And, there is a, and we're asking why we're doing this. So it really comes down, sales, I think, is a lot about trust because you're investing in the future. And then the Kong Summit was starting this movement of people, customers, community, partners that they can all meet in a place and gain trust from each other. This is the right way to go. And so we did it really for awareness and trust. It's not that at the end of it, we say, hey, how much deals we closed. That happens anyhow, but it's not our KPI. Our KPI is, is really building this awareness. That was Kong Summit 1. And it's expensive. You have to invest. But you build this thing, that this energy that then carries for the whole year, right? Kong Summit 2, we're more, okay, 
we have an enterprise track, we have a community track, so we're going to track things a little bit differently. But either way, it's about creating this movement and growing this kind of snowball uh, every year and create the sense of trust, which should then drive more sales over the years. So it's really about building a, not an open source community just, but really building this movement around your technology. And everybody agree, yeah, yeah, this is the right things to go. And then, and then when it finished, people have go and talks and, and we can build. And, and also we can learn a lot. We learn a lot from the people coming uh, as well, meeting face-to-face, customer partners. So it's a, a double way, right? So you have to invest. Uh, it's quite expensive. But, but you, you get a lot on building the snow. Think about building, a, building the snowball, right? And it requires a lot of time. So you have to do it when the marketing team and the community teams, it's, uh, it's at least 10 people because it requires a, a huge amount of time to organize a, a world conference. Yeah, even, if, even if it's, our first one was 250 people, but you still have to, to figure out all the details that comes like, you know, like, oh, the cookies, the cookies needs to have a gorilla. <laughs> and and, uh, and so there's all these thousand of these little things that somebody has to take care of it, if you want to make a good experience. Well, I, uh, joking aside, I think like Kong logo is great and people do really recognize it. That's why it. you invested. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're all about the logo. Um, okay. And you're coming at the summit too. He's going to go yes. and speak. So he doesn't know on what yet. But. Yeah. I don't know what I'm speaking on. I have been asked to speak. Okay. Uh, I'm going to put you on the hot seat now. Just, uh, yeah. I'm going to ask a question. Just give me the first thing that comes to mind. What's your favorite book uh, that you recommend other founders read? Uh, now, I change every quarter. Uh, now it's Prime to Perform. Okay, Prime to Perform. Yeah, Red Book. It's an amazing book. It's not one of those popular, famous books, but in terms of leading companies and growing companies, Prime to Perform is pretty astonishing. Great. Uh, like it goes from you know the the value of you know in the past we had we had the fire keepers right when you have a fires you have people control the fires and make sure that the fires was always on and now that's what is really what is culture ambassadors inside a company how you keep a culture where you grow it goes from there to sales to people management. So it's a really great book for growing companies. Awesome. Check it out. What's the best piece of advice you ever got that you like to give to other founders? We tend to overestimate what we can do a short term and we tend to underestimate what we can do longer term. Interesting. Interesting. I yeah. like that. So that means so, there's really, really good things so to come for Khan Don't in the give future. up like, you know, Basically, like, yeah, don't look like the first three years or whatever, right? I hear that as sand- the yeah, so, so the plan for next year is sandbagged, and you're going to do better than that. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last hot seats question for you. Pizza or pasta? That's true. <laughs> okay, that, that's the hardest question of the night. Uh, well, but it depends, because pizza, oh, there is like, okay, 20 flavors, and pasta, you have 500 different ways of doing it. It's also fresh pasta or just like a barilla? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it changes everything. Okay. Uh, I think All fresh right. pasta with seafood would be, would be the Fresh the pasta one. with yeah. seafood. Okay, good to know. All right, Augie, that was awesome. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Yeah. We do Q&A. Yeah. So we, we, have, we have some time for, for Q&A if anyone has a question. Hi, so every open source company you mentioned so far has been an infrastructure company, as far as I can tell, there's like Elastic, Kong, uh, others. I'm wondering what is both of your takes on open source applications and whether they have a place? Uh, yeah, for example, there is, uh, I mean, GitLab, you can consider it, but it's really collaboration, I would consider collaboration. Um, the Slack open source version, uh, Matter... Matter, mo- matter, more, matter most. Matter most, right? 
as well. So it's interesting because I think that's a new trend that we're seeing later where open source is not eating just infrastructure. It's still the majority of that, but it's starting to eat application levels. Uh, it's a new thing. So we'll see how big it will become, but it's a, it's a new... Um, a GitLab is doing really well. Malimorse is more earlier in the life. Um, there, there is the, the key thing is what, how you're going to monetize the, the cloud version. Is that a cloud plate for those? I think that's very important because that's how you're going to monetize those is through cloud. While the infrastructure, you, you still monetize the download and run on your own AWS kind of thing. Um, Ashikov, Kafka, Elastic, Conk, we, uh, we do like that. In the application level, probably would be the other way around. Like you, 99% it's how we can take this and, and selling you as a SaaS. But then it looks a lot like the, the closed source version of it. So it's TBD. Uh, I think open source is going to eat more than infrastructure for sure. Yeah, I think open source is, I would, I would agree with Agi. Open source is a super powerful model. But I, I kind of asked the question a little, at least the way I think about it, a little differently. Um, I think about how are you, you know, if you're starting a company, how do you get to market in a very disruptive way? Um, because if you're going after an application market, it's probably one that exists already. So you're you're trying to um, displace an incumbent. If it's if even if it's greenfield, um, I think greenfield is particularly difficult to do open source uh, because. You you know at that point if people don't know they have a need they don't know the market exists you, you've you got to figure out how you're going to educate them uh, on it but um, so if you ask the question okay how am I going to disrupt whatever incumbents exist in this market um, and get to market in an efficient way that's I think where I like that to me is the starting point and I think if you're an app oftentimes the right answer is something like oh that looks like open source but might not be open source. Because ultimately, you, you got to monetize uh, in, a, in you know through through cloud distribution, like Agi said. So uh, maybe it's you know free to try. Uh, I was an investor in Zendesk back in the day, and they did a very good job with that. Or maybe it's um, free to use up until you get to some gates in the product, like Slack, another one of our companies. Um, and those have been you know those are extremely disruptive models to existing incumbents very hard to compete with that are not open source and where you know you you do have open source companies in both those markets that haven't necessarily slowed those guys down yeah and i'll say like in the cohort of who's going to go public next after elastic you still have all the infrastructure you have like databricks ashicorp confluent right they're, they're all infrastructure i think that the application it's it's a little bit behind here it's very hurdly uh, that, that will come, but the next five in line are all infrastructure. Hi, I'm Stefano, CEO and co-founder of UniKD. Um, we do core, an open core identity platform for IoT, and we spend a lot of time with CTOs. We need to convince them, since we do infrastructure. So how do you convince uh, the CTO that is going to is gonna embed uh, Kong in their infrastructure for the next 10 years, and if it's not the CTO, who's, who yeah. has the last word for that? And when you mean CTOs, how big are those companies? Uh, 250,000 devices. Uh, but no, like um, market cap or headcount. Are there like global enterprise? Or? Global enterprises, utilities mostly. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. Utilities? Utilities are global enterprises which are supplying utilities. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we were talking about the other months. The, 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 the thesis is that you don't convince the CTO. You convince the people that are clicked below the CTO and report to the CTO, but they are the real influencer. 
So I think one of the traps that we've done a lot is, oh, the CIO is a decision makers. Instead, no, the CIO is a procurement person that moves papers, but he doesn't really understand technology, most of the part in these big companies. When he needs to make a decision, he goes down to the, uh, now you see a lot of VP of technology, which will function as a CTO, SVP of technology. The CTO as a thing is growing up into big companies, or chief architects. So those are the ones that, that um, can relate to you, and they, you convince them, becomes champions, and then they will pitch the CTO if they have to, if the, if the price is to a point that the CTO needs to get involved. Usually it's a seven figures annual deal, but if you're studying the 100K, it stops at the, at the chief architect VPs or directors, actually a lot is directors that we've seen. So the key is that you convince the director of technology or the director of digital or the chief architects, and you get your 100K and you land, and once you're done, you start to meet the people, and eventually you're gonna do a big deal three years down the road. But if you start to, let's go with the $5 million from the CIO of Coca-Cola, it's gonna be a long road of probably two years, right? But if you land 100K with the director of digital at Coca-Cola, I think that, that's a big win, and you start, and you start like that. So it was really like, convince the one that are under the CTO, or the, the CTO is easier, but the CIO, level, uh, because they trust them anyhow. When they ask something, they are not expert. They ask something, what do you think about this technology? What do you think about that? They're not, they're not gonna carry the decision on their own because they, they actually don't know much about technology. In fact, I find out that a lot of CIO at public companies, they come from a C CFO background. So they're really procurement people. They're not, very rarely they are actually, uh, what they used to be, you know, hardcore engineers. Um, you find them in the VP, and the, and the new way of selling I think the VP of technology, of the SVP of technology, they are the one that's gonna matter over the next 10 years. They are the one that can write also big checks over time. And the CIO is kind of, it will go probably into different, different it will, it will, I think it will evolve. We did a win and loss analysis uh, last week. And we found out that we, not lost, but kind of disappeared or sent to nurture. Uh, a lot of those that we couldn't pass, the developer. So the developer do the request demo, and the account executive, they see they stuck with talking with the developers, uh. the DevOps. It's a dead spiral. It's a, it's a totally dead spiral. You need to immediately go to the architect, or but if you stuck there, that's where we lost the most because it's not able to to pull it up to to some economical power. Uh, so he he would love to talk with you. He talks about all these massive features that he want to do five years ahead and talks and talks and talks and can't buy anything. So we got stacks a lot of this. In the will loss analysis, it was quite a... Like, Interesting. We, the one we couldn't upgrade the developer to, to, the, to the architect or something else, that deal went anywhere on, in the developers. And that's also why JavaScript open source framework they have so many users because it's all developers apps, but it's not monetizable. Yeah. So you go on GitHub as a VC and you're like, wow, this project has 50,000 stars. Let's put $30 million in it. And then, oh, there's nobody paying for it. <laughs> right? So it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that problem. Like, get out of the developer as soon as you can. Even for us, that is infrastructure. Hi. I run a product for the Swagger API tools, um, which have an open source as well as a paid component. So it's very relevant um, What's uh, the name? To me. Swagger. Swagger oh, Hub. Nice. You, you're building Swagger Hub? Yeah. So uh, my question to you is... Um, you know, we have a open source development team as well as the, the teams that uh, create the paid uh, versions of the products. How do you figure out how much to invest in, uh, in open source in terms of uh, um, development resources uh, versus um, stuff that the community does? I mean, on, on a scale of, you know, we're going to do every, uh, every single thing down to the bugs versus, you know, we're going to let the community do everything. 
how do you determine? Um, yeah, yeah, that? that's a good question. You work as Marbeer? Yeah. Nice. That, that's, a good, um, that's a good question. So in the case of Kong, um, we have the engineering org, and then we have the office of the CTO. Okay, so my co-founder CTO, we basically give him the, the concept of labs you know, at a smaller scale where he, pr he built a bunch of stuff like Kong early days and see what sticks, uh, forward thinking, so they're not part of the business, engineering built for the business for sales. So R&D kind of. Yeah, it's like aggressive R&D, right? So if you take the engineering part, we have about 70% on payroll, uh, excluding PM on, on enterprise, and 30% of payroll on, on people working on the open source core. However, the skill set of those core, it's more like 10x engineers kind of type. So you can't really quantify dollars of dollars. And then we have Octo, which is, it would be in this bucket too, but it's kind of a sidecar. And what I take, I usually have, okay, how many engineers we have? 50. And Octo is usually 10% of that. That's the ratio. And those five are, are I keep it that ratio. So if you're going to be 100, that's going to be 10. And those are like really forward-thinking bets that can be total no-go nowhere or someone can take off in your projects. So it's really a third of open source for the main business and 70% in terms of payroll, but the open source are more like 10x engineers. And then as a sidecars, we have this model. This works for us because Michael Fonter doesn't want to manage people. So I want, and so we give this lab, so he's always in the startup mode that he loves, and he, and he ships a bunch of new projects. And, and that's usually 10% of the total uh, R&D. And it might change, but um, it, it, lo it looks fine. Like we have, we have a lot of firepower on, on the open source because we have those 10x engineers. And the rule is also do um, rotation. I think it was one of your questions. Mm -hmm. Like the rotation is very important. You rotate like, them back to, to the paid product? Or? You rotate, yeah. Like there is a, this, the top engineer of a core goes to enterprise for uh, a quarter, learn, and then come back the quarter after to open source, and vice versa between all teams. So it pollinate because they have the very different things of the world, people unified. So that's, and also now we have a Kubernetes team specifically to do stuff on Kubernetes. We have now a cloud team specifically on the delivery model. But you move these people around, uh, the ones that want to do it, it, it helps a lot in terms of, uh, of having a, a better engineering organization that is more, not like, hey, I'm enterprise, you're open source, kind of like this. It, it's much better now. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat. <laughs>